so many Tarantini's. Hello and welcome to the Omcast. My name is Dom, that's one half of the Omcast. I'm joined by Tom. Say hello, Tom. Hi! So we now live in a world full of sequels, prequels, remakes and reboots, and we understand that sometimes life gets in the way and you're not always going to be able to catch up before a new one comes out. With that in mind, we're here to discuss our thoughts on the highs and lows of some of the biggest franchises in cinema history, before we find out if the new one is worth seeing. This week we continue, in fact, this week we conclude our retrospective on the films of Quentin Tarantino before the release of the upcoming Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So this time we're talking about the director's epic historical films, Inglorious Bastard, Django Unchained, and Hateful Eight. I think epic is the right word. Yeah. Because <laughs> this is where they all get... Like, his films have always been long, really. Um, well, it's always... like I messaged you. Like, we're right at the very start of this. And I was like... That last week's going to be a slog. Yeah. It was, like, and <laughs> it was tough. It was like, yeah, to find the time to watch these because they are massively huge films. Yeah. Um, and require a decent amount of sort of attention, particularly the first one, Inglourious Bastards, mm. because so much of it is subtitled. Yeah. Which is great. And I love the fact that he did that and he didn't like pander to people and have it all just be in English. Um, but it does mean that, yeah, you have to dedicate a massive amount of your time to do it, to watch them. Um, but I'd say for all three of them, it's worth it. Yeah. I would, su- I would suggest to any of the readers out there, don't do what we did, which is like plow through all three in a week. No. But really take your time with them because. Uh, yeah, like I said before, you know, we, there are some messages in there that aren't particularly great. Or, or I wouldn't even say messages. It's just a, like a lack of thought in there that aren't that great. But all in all, I think they're fucking brilliant. Yeah, they're all like, great. All three are really, really good. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, let's take them one at a time then. So, obviously, mm. coming off the back of he did Kill Bill 1 yeah. and 2, and then he did Death Proof, and then he went away for a bit. Yeah. And then he came back with um, England. Well, actually, it wasn't even that much of a gap, was there? Because I think Death Proof came out in 2007 and then Inglorious Bastards was 2009. Yeah. And so it wasn't that much, it wasn't as big a gap, but he obviously had this idea in his head about doing this World War II mm. Nazi killing drama thing, which is he'd yeah. been concocting in his head for a long time. And when it was first, like, when they were trailing it and people were talking about it, it's like, is Tarantino doing a World War II film where. Yeah a bunch of Jewish soldiers who call themselves the Inglorious Bastards are going to go out and just annihilate the Nazis. And you're like, fuck yeah, that sounds that amazing. Sounds brilliant. But that's not really what the film is. No, it's not. Um, Which is part of the issue that I had with it originally. Yeah. Was that I was expecting like a high-octane Kill Bill style. Yeah. Like really lean into these sort of like World War Two epics. Yeah. But that's not what we got. That's not what it is, but that's not to say what it is isn't great because like the opening scene sort of it sets the table for what it's actually going to be. And it is this incredible sequence with Christoph Waltz. Yeah. which sort of introduced Christoph Waltz to the world because he was this very much like a, a well-known in Germany mm. TV actor. And then Tarantino found him. And now we all know who Christoph Waltz yeah. is. Um, and yeah, he turns up at the beginning of Inglorious Bastards and they have this incredibly tense scene with a French um, dairy farmer yeah. and um, Christoph Waltz's character, who is known as the Jew Hunter. Yeah. And he's essentially, he's a Nazi SS officer who's been sent to France to hunt out Jewish people in sort of, right, is it towards the end or it's like... Yeah, it's towards... What, no, what? at the beginning, that sequence is somewhere in the middle of the war, isn't it? Yeah, that's during, so that's... A few years. Yeah. Like, I can't remember how many years. Is it two or it's three years? It's in the years? 40s. It's in the, it's in the yeah. 1942 or 43. Yeah. Um, but then, And then the f- majority of the rest of the film takes place in 45, I believe. Um, but, yeah, and that, like, basically, the whole thing is done in either French or parts of it in German. And at one point, he does switch to English. But it's this whole long thing where he's just, he's interrogating this guy, but he's doing it in a very, very polite way. Yeah, and he's doing it, but there's so much menace and tension in the scene, and it's all through both the way it's written and obviously and Christopher Waltz's performance. But I would say I can't, and I feel awful now. I've forgotten the name of the other chap. Um, but he's it's his performance that sells it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Waltz is is delivering this amazing sort of well, practically a monologue that's like mildly interspersed by the farmer saying a few bits. 
but it's the way that you gradually see like the the fuck you look in his eye that builds up to this just just terror in his face and he yeah. just he's just like I know that this guy knows he knows that I know they're going to do this anyway so I'm going to try and sort of get away or get out of this as much as I possibly can before he kills me and my entire family yeah and it just but it immediately sort of gets you into the stakes of this is the second world war yeah this is where we're at this is what is an ethnic cleansing going on mm-hmm. it, we're in you know you and it immediately sets up that fucking that stakes and what's going on and then immediately then from there it cuts to the bastards yeah and Aldo Ryan giving his speech about it's how commencement he, speech. Oh, I love that speech. It's so good. And there's a reason they used it in all the um, trailers and stuff. But then by doing that, it sort of missold the film yeah. a little bit because you wanted it to be one thing. And I think basically that was my fundamental issue with Inglorious Bastards. And I'll get to it straight away because we've got a lot to cover. Mm. Is that there isn't one protagonist no. that you follow all the way through. No. You have what it should be, I feel, is that the beginning of so in that sequence we just talked about at the farmhouse it ends with they find out there's the farmer is hiding a jewish family underneath his floorboards yeah and they the, the nazis come in and just slaughter them all but one girl gets away yeah who's um shoshana Shosh, shoshana yeah um and she then because later on they pick up her storyline but in the meantime they have all these other storylines going on and it feels like if she had been the point of view character for the whole movie, it would have been a yeah. stronger movie. Yeah, for or, sure. Or do the other thing, which you were originally going to do, which is have it be about this group of American soldiers behind enemy lines. Yeah. One of the two, but he's not either of them. No. he's He sort of can't service both. And then in the middle of all that, he then throws in, there's a whole other chapter in the middle of it where Michael Fassbender is kind of the point of view character. Yeah. And it's like, well, now you just add in another protagonist. And it's like, who am I meant to be following and rooting for? <laughs> and that was that's a really intelligent scene and like oh, this, I was yeah. really really smart oh the scene and like the sequence is amazing but yeah. the point the problem with it is that it doesn't fit with the rest of the narrative of yeah. the and again you could have made an entire movie about mm-hmm. Michael Fassbender as an undercover you know German film expert in World War 2 who had to then go and, and that that's a whole plot of a movie if you yeah. wanted it to be but instead what you've done is you've taken that idea and shoved it into the middle of these other two mm-hmm. movies that you're, you're making at the same time yeah and it doesn't all quite meld in together properly and that's that's again that's exactly the issue that i've got with this film is that yeah. there are big stretches of it that are genuinely quite boring yeah. because you don't know who you're following you're just like okay how uh, i need to get more invested in this and there is like palpable tension in these scenes mm. and these scenes are some of the best work that he's ever done yeah the point in case with in the bar, the bar scene is fucking brilliant, which is amazing. But I just feel like it would have been better if it had been like it had been Aldo, it had been Brad Pitt's character, or conversely to that, you'd had you know Michael Fassbender being the the sergeant who then yeah. puts himself on the line by going down there and like trying to pretend to be German. Mm-hmm. But instead, they've just they've literally just introduced this guy in this really bizarre scene with him and Mike Myers, yeah, and uh, Winston Churchill. Um, and then throw him into the middle of this. And most of the main characters, like Brad Pitt's not there. Eli Roth's not there. No. Like, you've got Hugo Stiglitz is there. Yeah. Um, and he's cool. He's great. And but and then you also get another character they just introduced at that point is, um, what's the name? Uh, Daniel Brawl. No, uh, what's the name? Von Hammersmark. Uh, oh, yeah, Diane Kruger. Yeah, Diane Kruger, who she's great. She's, she's really good. brilliant, and I'm amazed that I'm really weirded out that because like, I remember her being a thing like back in like she was in Troy, yeah, that was where she came out. Like, she was meant to be the face that launched a thousand ships, and they put, yeah. plucked this random German actress out of yeah. obscurity, and it was like, oh shit, okay. And then it was in this that you go, oh shit, no, actually, she's really good. She's, she's actually great. a really, really good actress. <laughs> fair play. And then now she seems to have disappeared. Like she made this Troy and National Treasure. Oh, God, she did, didn't she? And then she disappeared. I don't understand it. I don't understand what happened. But anyway, I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, the thing with Inglorious Bastards is it's it's, it's frustrating because yeah. the, I know exactly what you're saying, then it, but it's one of those things, and like I was reading about it on, I think it was Wikipedia or somewhere. Yeah. And they were saying it's 
it's one of these films that's like widely acclaimed to be like Tarantino's best work mm. because there are film critics all over the world that are like this is my this is my favorite film this is my like number five film of all time and stuff yeah. and it's like I didn't get it then I, yeah, and well, no, I don't it, know I think it's like I say it's not to me it's not that yeah they could there are three films in this film mm. and it, any one of them could be in my top ten but because yeah. it's three films crammed into one yeah it doesn't work and that's it's strange to say that of Tarantino, who has done that before. Exactly. Like, that's exactly what Pulp Fiction is. Pulp Fiction is, is several different movies all happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, Pulp Fiction just holds together better yeah. than Inglorious Bastards does. And I can't put my finger on why quite. I guess because there's less, there's t- not as many characters or through lines in Pulp Fiction. Because Pulp Fiction, like, two out of three of the storylines f- follow Vincent Vega. Yeah. Or Jules, or a variation, or the pair of them. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So there is a bit more to it. Whereas this, you've got, yeah, you've got Aldo and and the bastards. You've got Diane Kruger and Michael Fassbender, and you've got um, Shoshana, mm-hmm. and you've got um, Christoph Waltz. Yeah, and Daniel Brühl, and Daniel Brühl. Yeah. So there's a whole different. Although Daniel Brühl is the, the the antagonist, and so is Christoph Waltz, I guess. But like. Yeah, and but that's the thing. It's like it's like you say. There are two antagonists, but then they're actually the the the, the real antagonist is the Nazis, yeah. just in general. But yeah. then Joseph Goebbels is there, and Adolf Hitler is there, yeah. and then it's this revisionist piece, and then it's and you're like, okay, okay, this is it's so much to process all yeah. at a time that I just I think it serves better on repeat viewings yeah, so if i was to because i haven't seen this since it first came out on home release already oh, okay so i saw it at the cinema i saw it on home release and i haven't seen it since yeah and i'm like it's good but yeah yeah it's just too many different things and like, i would have loved it like if you just focused the one story on like so shoshana's um storyline basically ends with her running a cinema in um france and then yeah. it ends up being this whole thing about her holding hosting the um premiere of a new bit of like nazi propaganda mm-hmm. at her place filling the whole place with the nazis and then she comes up with her own plan of revenge and gets the revenge that yeah. she deserves and it's like her revenge is much more palpable because we saw the opening scene where this yeah. this guy gunned down her entire family yeah and she does the whole thing of filming a bit of her uh, you know footage of herself talking to camera talking to the nazis Mm -hmm. saying this is the face of of jewish revenge and then that's like intercut with the bastards killing hitler and just machine gunning him (laughs) and it's like we get it tarantino you're saying that it's cinema will have the ultimate revenge on the nazis it's the power of cinema yeah that's the point he's trying to make but it's not subtle no (laughs) and that's the thing and it it is it's it is like a really intelligent approach, like you say, because, and that's the thing, like a lot of people wouldn't pick up on it the same way that you did, like, because some people would watch it and be like, oh, they killed Hitler, what? Yeah. And would be genuinely yeah, quite no, confused I, by I, that. I, I think the first time I saw it, I was like that, because I was, you know, watching it under the presumption that it would be, you know, a historical piece in the same sense of stuff like, did you ever watch Valkyrie? No. So that is a story about German soldiers or German officers who attempted to kill Hitler. Yeah. And that was, but that was based on a true story. And so mm-hmm. the whole time going, watching the whole movie, you know they're going to fail. Yeah. So that was basically the assumption I had watching Glorious Bastards. I assumed that this was all going to go horribly wrong because I didn't realise how much of a revisionist he was going to be. Yeah. Like, I know that it was obviously, there wasn't really an Inglorious Bastards. No, but like, still, like, like, but I, but I knew that, like, oh, they're no, he's not going to go too far. They're not going to kill Hitler. Oh no, what they are? They are going <laughs> to yeah. kill Hitler. He'll do whatever he wants. <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay, um, and yeah, and I get that, but yeah, I, and I get the point that he's trying to make in terms of cinema and stuff. But I wish that if if he focused it up more and had it be more about one or the other, yeah, then it would have worked better. I mm-hmm. think, um, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, and I'm I'm completely completely on board with you on the same point as that. It's I think it would have served it better. And as I've probably said to the the point where people are probably sick of hearing it, but the way that Tarantino portrays women mm. is really frustrating. But then you see something like this, and you're like, Shoshana could have been. Yeah, 
that's what could I mean. have been that character. But that's the thing. She almost is. Like, she's so close. Like, if they just, like, she she keeps, keeps getting, like, flirted with by this, by Daniel Brawl's character. Yeah. And he keeps approaching her. And she's very, she's strong in saying, look, no, thanks. Like, yeah. because of your uniform and all the rest of it. And she makes her point. And, like, if you just, it would have been great to have seen, like, what happened to her immediately after the slaughter of her family and how she then ingratiated mm-hmm. herself into, like, what is it like for a Jewish person living in Nazi-controlled yeah. Paris during the war, yeah. trying to make a living for herself? All the did rest she of it. really inherit that theatre from... How did she get the theatre? How is she going to be working the in the- a mixed-race relationship? How did, she get, yeah, how did she get the theatre? How did she come up with it? Yeah, her boyfriend, who's the black guy, who's the projectionist. How did they meet? That's a whole movie, which he could have done and could yeah. have made it about. But instead, we cut in between... And see this other whole sequence. And the thing is, like, it's not like I'm saying what we what he gives us is crap because what he gives us is the bar scene, which is fucking brilliant. Yeah, but it just doesn't work as a film. No, to Charlene, it the... feels really disparate. Yeah, it's like it's, he could have done it as a mini series. Yeah, and had like, and the idea being that there are multiple narratives and multiple sets of characters that mm-hmm. all culminate in this one night, which yeah. is night at the premiere, and that would have worked better. But instead, because he's trying to make a movie, he tries it's, to do it all at the same time. Yeah. But he also spends so much time with his own dialogue. Yeah. And that's that's the frustrating thing about this. Is it's, you are really, really established as being this really strong writer of putting in these sort of electrifying scenes of people just having a conversation. Hmm. Try and go for something a bit new. Yeah. And I get like a revisionist history piece or a World War II piece is something new, but... When you're working with someone that's like Tarantino, who has that level of expectation, who has that level of understanding, it's it felt a bit wanky. Yeah, it felt a bit like, oh, I mean, I am fucking great, and it's like, yes, you are fucking great, but do something a bit better with this one. Yeah, yeah, and like, I think this is much as we love these three films, these are definitely the films where his self indulgence, yeah, is right on display mm-hmm. to a point where, yeah the fact that there are they are so long the scenes go on for so long even sometimes the scenes without dialogue but we were just watching Django Unchained <laughs> and the scene where they're riding up to Candyland goes on for about 10 minutes yep. with just some music and it's like this is all brilliantly shot and brilliantly well done but yep. did it need to be 10 minutes Quentin did it really yep. but it's got to the point now where he's Quentin Tarantino and mm-hmm. no one's going to argue with him yeah. If he goes into the editing room and says, this sequence is going to take this long, I want yeah. that shot, I want that shot, I want that shot. There's no editor who's going to say different. No. And that's what he needs, I think. I think he needs someone who's got a bit more of a backbone to be his yeah. editor. Well, because that's the thing. He had like that one editor that he always worked with, didn't he? Yeah. And she recently passed away. Um, and he was saying, that was like my right hand. Yeah. But it did feel, like, like you say, going to Django, you do feel that he's walked in and said, this film's going to be two hours and 45 minutes. Make it fit. Yeah. And you, they go, okay. It's yeah. 40 minutes of horse riding shots. Yeah. And there are long, and these films in the spaghetti Western films that this was sort of based off of or inspired by, shall we say, there are extended sequences of people riding horses. Yeah. But nowhere near this extent. Not like this, no. Um, yeah, I mean, that leads And those films off. were like 90 minutes long. Yeah. Not nearly twice that. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, that sort of leads us straight into Django Unchained. Django Unchained is... <laughs> um, yeah, Django Unchained is like his probably his most iconic and like one of his most well-known movies now, yeah. certainly. Um, it's the biggest earning one. Probably, yeah. And it, and it was a big, big deal. Mm-hmm. Because of the subject matter and because of the cast and everything that it was that was surrounded it, it was just a massive deal. I think it came out in twenty twelve. Yeah. So it came out during like, you know, Obama was president. And it's yeah. like it's the kind of thing people say like you couldn't have made this film now and you couldn't no. have made this film earlier. It's like it's such a product of its time. Um and obviously this is Tarantino dealing with slavery. Yeah. And again, like when you hear that, it's the same as the reaction you have when you hear about him dealing with World War Two and the Nazis, you just go Oh fuck! Yeah. Oh god! What's he gonna do? What's he gonna yeah. do? And but it's this sort of cathartic, like "fuck you" to the white man with Jamie Foxx playing Django, who is a character who has existed in previous movies as well. Like Django is a legacy character. Yeah. Um, from these old spaghetti westerns, 
that he's then picked up and decided to continue with. Um, so everything about it is a homage, but yeah. done in a very Tarantino style. And it, yeah, it is probably one of my favourite Tarantino films. Yeah, same here. And I would, it would almost be up there right at the very top, except for there are just so many gaps where I'm just like, fucking come on. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. But like, and, and, but other than that, and that's what I found so frustrating with it, is that I love it. Yeah. I really love this film. Problems aside. But the main thing that really gets to me the whole time, and every time I watch it, this is the one that I've seen probably most, yeah. more, most than others. It's just really, really long. It is long. It is long, but again, it's one of those things where I, I can't think of a scene. There are certain, there are parts of scenes, like you said, mm. like the lead up to wherever that I would cut, maybe. But I can't think of like a full scene where it's like, well, this is great. Mm. These are all actors at the top of their game, mm-hmm. fucking firing on all cylinders. You've got Leonardo DiCaprio and Samuel Jackson and Christoph Waltz and Jamie Foxx, and everyone's just firing it yeah. up, you know, and everything's like just working perfectly. Yeah. Um, thoroughly entertained throughout the whole thing. So even though it is two and two hours and forty five minutes long, mm-hmm. it's like I don't want you to get rid of any of this. I don't don't get rid of the scene where they like where he goes into the town and and they have a uh, beer together. No, nope. don't get rid of the scene where the Mandingo fights because that's really important. You can't get rid of the scene where they you know the montage scene where they go and he learns how to be a bounty hunter. That's really you can't get rid of that. Can't get rid of that. Do you know what I mean? And before you know it, oh well, it turns out yeah, it has to be two hours and forty five minutes. You're right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> But but that's what I mean is that it's there's so much in there yeah. and it is really dense, but it's interspersed with big gaps. Yeah, I know what you mean. Which, yeah. which is which is yeah, I don't know. But I still love it. Yeah, it's great. Like I love a spaghetti western film. Like the Ennio Morricone like original song that he put in it with the with the score that they've. I think they did they reuse that score from. Yeah, they, I think it's a mixture. It's a really weird mixture. This this um, soundtrack because what's interesting now is with these three films in particular this is yeah. where he goes from not doing jukebox soundtracks as such where they're, yeah. ju- they're just bits of pop music now they're more score driven there mm-hmm. are still bits of music put in there um particularly in django like he uses like there's a john legend track in there yeah but there's even there's stuff like there's a song that was written for the movie yeah which is rick ross with a bit of um jamie fox voiceover in yeah. there as well which is the hundred black coffins yeah i think jamie fox wrote that song in fact wicked um but yeah, it, it's very much, it's more score. And what's the name of the guy? Ennio Morricone. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. He's great. And he finally won his Oscar for Hateful Eight. But I think he worked on all three of these. Um, yeah, and but... Morricone's been, is one of the most celebrated composers outside of like the the, the more obvious ones, like the John Williams yeah. and the Hans Zimmers. But He's spectacular. I mean, look him up. It, like by any means, if anyone's this is the first time anyone's heard of him, look him up and just see how extensive this guy's history is. Yeah, it's mind blowing. Um, and yeah, that's just one of the last thing because it's because it's this period piece. It doesn't have as many of those sort of intrusive music moments in there. Yeah, um, and it does like, sort of let you feel the 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 world and like the set design and the production design and everything is amazing. It's on Django. Gorgeous. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like there, like you say, there are interspersed moments that are, I don't know, but they felt really comfortable and they never felt jarring. Mm. Like when you do get like a Rick Ross hip hop song in a spaghetti Southern. Yeah. Uh, Cause it's not really a Western. Well, I mean, it is a Western, but it's in the South. Yeah. So, but yeah, so we'll call it a spaghetti southern. Um, but to have a hip hop song put in there at that point, you're like, that's weird. But it feels natural. Yeah, and, and actually, having a character with sunglasses. Yeah. In, you know, pre Civil War. Yeah. It just feels natural. It's fun. yeah, it's one of those weird things, and and it actually it, it happens again in um, not to go back too far, but in Glorious Bastards, it also um, I'm reminded of the part where it's um, David Bowie. Yeah. Putting out fire with gasoline. Yeah. Fucking perfect. Yeah. It's not period at all. Nope. It doesn't make any sense. But you see that is this Jewish woman putting on this like amazingly stunning red dress and she's about to go burn down all the Nazis. And here's David Bowie putting out fire with gasoline. Yeah. Like, perfect. 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 It's like it's, it's the fact that he doesn't brilliant. he manages to have it be 
set within the time period and a lot of that's to do with the production design and all the rest of it but he never lets it go he never lets that tie your hand behind his back sort of thing yeah. do you know what I mean he always goes yeah. oh no well yeah but this will be cool though won't it yeah <laughs> do you know what I mean? and it's like we were saying last week like you raised the point about like being cool is the most important part of it yeah and it and it kind of is a little bit I think this he pairs that back a bit in these ones yeah I feel like he he does sort of there are elements of it where he gives it the sort of time and attention and the mm-hmm. and the because a lot of, particularly for both Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, they're dealing with very heavy subject matter, and the point of them is to have these like cathartic, like yeah. kicking the ass. So it's the Jewish people kicking the Nazis' ass, and it's the black people killing the slavers' ass. Yeah, and he doesn't ne- ever let the rule of cool out. Like he never makes the slavers cool. No, do you know what I mean? And he doesn't. I mean, he the- puts Tarantino. Uh, not. Tarantino, he puts DiCaprio in. Yeah, there. but Di- DiCaprio isn't but he's a as literal a cool character. Mustache twirling exactly, villain. and that's that's like something I was reading about. Like he was saying that the only character he's ever created that he truly despised is Calvin Candy. Really, he fucking hates Calvin Candy. Brilliant, and it's like, yeah, I get it. And like they, it's an interesting thing they do with the Nazis because the Nazis are like they're more intelligent than the Americans. And then, and do you know what I mean? And they outthink them. But then, what I like about it is that they have this whole philosophy that they keep going back to with Aldo, where it's like, that's all well and good. But when this is over, you're going to take that uniform off, aren't you? I don't see it right with us. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the um, with the slavers. Like they, but they're even less redeemable. They've got no intelligence about yeah. them whatsoever. And it's inverted. So now you've got Christoph Waltz, is the refined European mm-hmm. who comes into these into America and sees all these white people treating black people like shit and just doesn't understand it and he's like the elevated one yeah. who, sit, who sort of is above it all and it disgusts him as it should do mm. it's almost like he's someone from like his character in king schultz is almost like a character from our modern day who's lifted out of our day yeah. and then just plumped into this and he's our point of view character to a yeah. certain extent and one thing that i did enjoy about it there, there are two sides of this that sort of not bug me but there's the one part that we don't have a redeemed white man as the hero almost, mm. as the white saviour. Yeah. He already knows that this is a bad thing. Yeah. And he is already... And yeah, he goes out with the intention of getting Django to find these other guys. Yeah. But when it comes down to it, he's like, I'm on board. I'm yeah. on board with this. Let's go and do it. Yeah. So he's happily happy to go along and sort of be the ride not not be the rider but to be the guy sat in the passenger seat to be the chewy but at the same time it does sort of the first two acts can be a bit frustrating because you're like this is Django yeah and this is Christoph Waltz doing all the talking and doing 85% of the actions I guess so I think basically what it is is he Christopher Waltz's character is a facilitator for Django. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. He makes him, like, Django always had it in him, mm-hmm. but no one ever gave him the opportunity because it's the slave trade in America. So the minute someone gives him the opportunity, by the time the the, the end of the movie comes around, he's just as smart and he's faster and he's better than, yeah. than, than Christopher Waltz's character ever was. Yeah. And he can talk his way out of situations and he can shoot everybody and all the rest of it because all he needed was the opportunity. Yeah, and exactly. So Christopher Watts gave him that opportunity. Yeah. So it kind of, I can see why people would say, oh, it's the white saviour thing. But mm-hmm. to me, like, it, they never overdo, they never, like, make Django out to be an idiot. No. And then he has to be taught how to do things by, like, like some sort of moron. Yeah. And, he, and the white man goes, no, it's okay. Like, they don't do yeah. that. They like, don't, it's not pandering, I don't think. It's no. literally just a case of he puts a gun in his hand and fuck me, look how quick he is. Yeah. Like, that's all you need to do is give him a gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> give him the opportunity and he can be the best. Yeah. And he kind of, it almost reminds me a little bit of the thing, the same argument people have with like the Tony Stark Iron Man relationship mm. with Spider Man. Mm. Where it's like, well, you no, know, Peter was always a hero. He just, he just was given the opportunity by Tony. Yeah. In the new version of that character. And yeah. it's the same with Django and um, Schultz. And it, and yeah, and that's the thing. And it's there. There is there are a couple of bits where you're like, oh, he's is the teaching him to, and it's it could come across worse with the teaching him to read when he gives him the um, yeah, but even the that, bill paper. But it's but Django is is the one that's reading yeah. and is the one that's doing it, and he just he just sits there patiently yeah. and because he knows that he's going to do it. Yeah, 
and, and, that, he, and then that, that's great is that they use that same bill fold later on yeah where he he then uses that same because he keeps it because he makes a point of saying that you always keep your, your the bill fold from your first kill yeah and then he keeps it later on and he's like memorized it he knows it all mm-hmm. off by hand he knows one of the names of the of the yeah, I love it. It's so good. It is great. That's what I mean. Like you need it. It all needs to be there because yeah. it all it all pays off so beautifully. Mm. Um, the the one one thing that I did see is a bit of criticism for this, which uh, I do really disagree with. Is and almost to the what we were saying about when we were watching it about the casting of Jamie Fox. Yeah, because some I was reading somewhere and someone was like. Oh yeah, Jamie Foxx was the wrong person to put in it. I'm like, no, he's great. He is great. He's really good. Originally, he they wanted it to be uh, Will Smith to oh. a point where Will Smith's agents were asking, were telling him to take it, and he didn't want to take it. Yeah, because in this movie, he doesn't play a father yeah. who's trying to do the best thing for his <laughs> wife or son, and there were no parts for his kids. But it's so in he do it. Wiki Wiki Wild Wiki Wiki. He wild, asked. Wild he asked um, Tarantino if he could do the soundtrack, and Tarantino said no. Uh, that's probably and it. so that's why they didn't do it. Apparently, Idris Elba was also in the frame for it at one point. Really, which would have been interesting. Um, but I feel, yeah, for somebody for whatever reason, I think like Jamie Foxx is just perfect. Yeah, because he's got that like quietly spoken, cool. Yeah, like, do you know what I mean? And there's something about it; it just fits perfectly for this for this movie. Um, but yeah, I think Jamie Foxx is such a great performer. Like, and then in this, like you say, it's the really quietly spoken, like really silkily delivered lines mm. and everything about him is like effortlessly smooth and cool from like the what is modern attire that's been made to look like it's from back in the day yeah but he just looks and oozes coolness throughout yeah. and it, that perfectly dictates like a a Tarantino protagonist for me yeah but yeah but he's just got this yeah they've, they've got this element of like watching his journey like when you first meet him in the woods and he just throws off that shawl and you see all the scars on his yeah. back. And it's that whole thing of like, he's not ashamed of them. It's like, this is the way he doesn't give a shit. And he's just like, like he's strutting hmm. because he's like, he's like fucking, he owns his, like his past and everything. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I love it. I think the way they put that character together is fucking brilliant. Yeah. Um, and he's one of the most satisfying character arcs in all of Tarantino movies, I think. Yeah. To see where he starts to where he ends. And like the ending is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And it's like I said to you earlier, I was like, like I always forget when I see this film about the part where he gets the shootout. caught. No, not the shootout, but the bit where he gets caught at the end of the shootout. Oh, so right, the yeah. shootout happens. But he's hanging upside down. Yeah. Yeah. And then Walton Goggins is there, and I've seen a lot of Walton Goggins being a big old racist recently. Yeah. And I, see, I need to see him being someone nice Yeah. at some point, because uh, I think he's a great actor. Yeah. But... Just stop being a cunt all the time. Maybe just watch Ant Man of the Wasp. They'll they'll do it. I mean, I know he's not the best in that. Yeah, oh, I just dropped the C bomb. That's all right. So what? That was the one word that we. No, you. I'm you the before. only only person that on this podcast that has used that word. Yeah, I know. And I. Because only that's not difficult. That's fifty percent of the of people on the podcast. Tom, it's but not you like, say it a lot. You say it a lot off air. No, I don't. I've never said that word. I find it abhorrent. Yeah, you're a cunt. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, what were we saying? I was calling Wally Goggins. Walter Goggins, yeah. Uh, well, the only other one, the other thing we need to talk about, I guess, in terms of Django, is a couple of other members of the cast. So, we, Christoph Waltz is fucking amazing, mm-hmm. and like this part was written for him off the back of Inglorious Bastards, and yeah. it is obvious it's fairly obvious that's he, he was a german dentist in like, you know what I mean? like obviously, german dentist turned bounty hunter obviously you made this for, because of him and it's like who cares because that's twice now he's worked with tarantino and twice he's won an oscar for it yeah so there's a reason because he fucking nails it but then another one that he managed to get in which is this is the only time it's ever happened up till now we're going to see it again soon is leo dicaprio yes and so leo dicaprio gets to play with some tarantino dialogue and has a fucking ball with it yeah. but well apparently he didn't apparently he found it really difficult because of how racist he was being yeah and like like um samuel jackson had to take him to one side and just go dude we deal with this every day yeah it's okay and he's just like it's just a film it's all right but he was like struggling with it because he like hated the character so much he's such a despicable and he is just and a he is fucking piece of and shit you, and it's completely different for 
DiCaprio as well, because we've never seen him play a character like this. No. Not before or since. He's never been... He's always been the hero. We've always been rooting for Leo mm-hmm. in whatever he's in. But in this, he's just fucking vile and, and horrible and just but just like pompous and... Ugh, ugh. But the thing is, he's like this... The, what annoys me about him so much is that he's so disaffected by it all. Yeah. Like, he just doesn't care. He's like, what? Yeah, but that's what they're there for. And that's yeah. what they are. That's how they're bred. And it's just like, you're like, and it's just the the willful ignorance of it's the, the whole thing. It's the fact that he, he tries to underpin everything he has with, like, logic. With reason, yeah. With reason. Like, he talks about, like, when he's talking to, um, at one point on their way back to Candyland, as mm. his place is called, which is a great little, like, the fact that they call it Candyland. Yeah. Um, but on, when on the way back, they find there's one of the Mandingo fighters that he has, is run off, a guy called D'Artagnan. And he sits down, sort of like breaks it down logically for him. He goes, "When I pay five hundred dollars for you, I expect five fights, and you've only done two fights." So it's like he thinks, like the fact that he thinks he's being perfectly reasonable. Yeah, and he just he breaks it down and, and has that. That's his logic. Yeah, and the, how cold that is. And yeah, that's what you mean. That's that's what makes him so fucking. Yeah. And then there's this whole phonology thing, which is another element of it. Oh, that's fucking vile. <laughs> which is yeah. So they have the and. The, they seed that throughout. There's a point when they first meet him and it cuts to a, a dinner scene where they're talking about phonology, which is the science of skulls and studying people's yeah. skulls. So it was, a, yeah, it's phrenology was the, like the... It's a pseudoscience that's yeah. since been disproven to be absolute bullshit. Yeah, and it's about, oh, the size and the shape of somebody's cranium dictates what sort of a person they are. Yeah. But it's all bollocks. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, and so and then he takes that to the nth degree where we have this scene at the dinner table where he literally gets a skull out yeah. of a former slave, and is trying to demonstrate to them to the the audience essentially who are you know Schultz and uh, Django Django and everyone else around the table that oh yeah this is the reason why we are superior to the black man sort of yeah. thing. And explain it with science. And again, yeah. it's that his absolute surety of his. Yeah, it's fucking horrible. It is fucking horrible. But it does mean that we get this amazing scene where at one point Leo DiCaprio smashed a glass. Yeah. And cut his hand open. But carries on. But carries on. So apparently, so the, the story goes that he slams his hand down on the table, breaks a glass, mm. and it cuts him and it starts bleeding. But he carries on with the scene because yeah. Tarantino likes to do these big long takes where they just keep going. So he carries on and continues with his dialogue. And he's still shouting and like pointing his point. You know, there's a lot of bull, lot of lies spread around this table. And he's really going for it and just carries on, carries on, carries on until he gets to the end of the sequence. And then apparently, like everyone on set just like gave him a standing ovation. It was like that's amazing. And they ran in and gave him like a towel to wipe himself up because he's bleeding. Like it's coming down yeah. his hand. It's quite bad cut. And then there came this idea that um, DiCaprio had where it was like, well, if I've done that, you know that part where I say about. I can do with her whatever I choose. Mm. What about if I take the blood from my hand and smear it on her face? And Tarantino was like, yeah, that's a great idea, and went and got some fake blood so they can continue the continuity. Yeah. And then that meant that then, because they had to continue the continuity, the uh, the take where he breaks the glass is the mm. one that's used in the final movie. Yeah. And it's just... That's fucking... Boring. Fucking DiCaprio, man. Fucking DiCaprio. Fair play. Yeah. I mean... It is fucking great. Really like Django. Yeah. Just trying to think what else is there really. I mean, Kerry Washington's in this film for a bit. She is. Um, I, I've got a bit of an issue with Kerry Washington in this one. Yeah. And that she does seem to be really, I think, well, hammy is the only word I've got for mm. it really. She's really over the top. Everyone else is like super naturalistic. Yeah. And like really like dialed Tarantino. in. Tarantino. Tarantino, yeah. But she is just like really, really over the top, and like every time someone just like touches, <laughs> just like hysterical every five mm. minutes. It's just like it takes you out of it a little bit. I don't know. She must have been directed like that. I can only assume. Yeah, but I don't. That's, know, that's, I, I don't know if that's because of it's again like a homage to like the sort of damsel in distress type, which is kind of what she is. Yeah, but I don't know if that's helpful <laughs> to have someone be portrayed like that. And it's there's part of it that's like okay yeah she's just come out of the the hot box yeah and that's fairly traumatic and the yeah. way that you see her come out and what's happened and 
but at the same time, you're like, okay, there's maybe there's a level of like PTSD here, but still, like, she's pretty much the only female character that has any sort of reason in this film. Yeah, there's and interesting she's ones like just written as a victim. Yeah, she's just a vi- she's nothing else in there other than p- to be a victim. Yeah. It's a bit weird. Yeah, it's a shame because I think it, he's so focused on the racial elements of it that the se- yeah. the sexual politics of it doesn't even enter yeah. his mind because he's so focused on the white man and the, and the black man and yeah. the, and every scene revolves around that. Every scene is like people freaking out because Django's just rode into town, yeah, or he's just walked into a bar or whatever. So th- there's no question about what women what a woman can and can't do mm-hmm. because that's he can't do both. Yeah, it's like you can only focus on one major issue at a time. Yeah, so I kind of get that, but yeah. But saying about like it, the improvement side of things, like when we were saying about with sort of how to improve in Glorious Bastards, imagine if the gender roles were stopped, swapped there, and Kerry Washington was Django, and she was going to get a husband, yeah, who had been taken away, and she'd been sold in a different way, and she was going after it, and they were like, "You can't have a black woman do this." Yes, you yeah. fucking can. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Jamie Jamie Fox in this, but it would have. I think it could have equally worked if you'd have sort of. It could have, but it. then I feel like you would have lost a lot of the like spaghetti western, like because it is that like yeah. the the man saving his woman and it, yeah. although we now look at that from our lens and say oh it's a bit reductive, it's a bit. Mm, it if you're making a throwback to a spaghetti western, that yeah. is kind of the exact kind of plot you want to be. You want to be is a man rescuing a woman from the princess from the castle. Yeah. And she literally, they even telegraph that to a point where they call her Brunhilde. And that is based on a, um, German, German fairy, tale. fairy tale where she is a princess that needs to be rescued. Yeah. And it's like, well, if that's the convention you're playing with, then that's kind of the role she has to play. Yeah. So I kind of get it. And it, but then, and then you go, right, well, yeah, when he's talking about in, for the purposes of this movie, that's the role she has to play. And he goes, but when I make something like Jackie Brown, yeah. And it's set in 1990s. I'm gonna actually change the race of the character from the book into yeah. a black woman and have her be a powerful black woman yeah. in 90, who gets the better of all the men. Pam and Greer. Ro- yeah, and rides off into the yeah. sunset. So that makes sense. Whereas with this, if he's trying to make, if you're trying to make a throwback, yeah. you have to, you're bound by that a little bit. Yeah, that's so fair. I, enough. I, get I that. do appreciate it. Yeah, and that's I hadn't thought about it in that way to be honest. Too busy being a snowflake, I guess. But, yeah, well, I'm. But just, that's the thing. It is one of those. It is a really interesting way, and that's kind of the purpose of what we're doing is to talk about alternative takes as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, that hadn't crossed my mind to be honest. Yeah. Well, I mean, the it sort of leads us into the next one because the next one I completely agree with you in terms of its its treatment of women. Yeah. Um, which is the Hateful Eight. Yeah. So the Hateful Eight um, is the final film we'll talk about in this uh, series. And again, it's this epic in the sense of it being long, the, the scope of it is actually quite small, but in terms of the, the, just how long the bloody film is, it's like two and a half, two, almost three hours long. And it's another Western. Um, and it's basically a very boiled down story of a bunch of different people who all end up at the same point on a mountain in this like haberdashery, the mini's haberdashery um, during a snowstorm and they have to sort of, and chaos ensues basically. Mm. And it's just a room full of Tarantino actors and character actors absolutely fucking killing it. Yeah. And it's great. I really like The Hateful Eight. A lot of people don't like it. fucking love The Hateful Eight. (laughs) Like, sort of, sexual politics aside... I fucking love this film. A lot of people really don't, you know. I was literally I know, talking, even leading up to this. Have you been talking to people about like doing the Tarantino movies? Yeah, everyone says that. Oh, I really like his films. Didn't like that last one. Mm. Didn't like the Hateful Eight. I thought it was boring. Oh, I fucking love it. But and I can kind of get it because it is long, drawn out conversations. But again, he's had this whole thing about it's about an Ameri- a part of American history. Yeah. And what's interesting is looking at as a companion piece to Django. So Django is set three years before the Civil War. Mm-hmm. This is set just after the Civil War. Yeah. And it's really interesting watching them back to back and watching them together is like going up, right, this is the tension all building up to this crescendo that is at the end of Django. Yeah. And it's like, right, it's a race war, essentially. It's the North versus the South. It's the, you know, all the rest yeah. of it. And then it happens off screen and then we see the aftermath of it in the 8th late. And you see that there are there are two sides of things. So you get... 
um, Kurt Russell's character in this, mm-hmm. who's very much a sort of more enlightened, if you like, uh, bloke from the north yeah. side of things, he's fought for the Union. Yeah. And then you get Walton Goggins, who fought for the Confederacy. Yeah. And he's got a very different point of view. And then throw into the mix... Bruce Dern. I mean, there's Bruce Dern. I was going to say Samuel Jackson. And the, yeah. Samuel Jackson, who is a former cavalryman for the... Um, for the for the union, yeah, um, and where still wears his uniform, yeah, and carries around a letter from Abraham Lincoln because they shared a correspondence. Yeah, they was pen pals, and there's so much tension and racial sort of. There's so much going on in all of that, like, and they manage, and they go right. Well, what's the best place to? I'll tell you what. Let's get all that and contain it in a box car, yeah, for the first half of the movie, and then contain it in one room for the rest of the movie. It's fucking great. It's great. And one of the things that I love about this so much is it, and this is to sort of spoil a little bit earlier than I'd planned, but this is probably up there with Reservoir Dogs for me. Yeah. Because it's, formulaically, it's very, very similar. Yeah, yeah, But the scope is so much grander in the way that, like the set design and the way that the flashbacks or flash sideways are and the way that things all sort of come together in the same sort of way. And you're like, this is just fucking. Brilliant. Yeah. It's weird that, it, yeah. Cause it, it, we're at the end of our whole sort of epic, if yeah. you like retrospective. And it does feel like with the hateful out, you have come full circle. Yeah. Cause it does. It just turns out with a bunch of people who don't trust one another in a room, completely different setting, completely different context. But yeah. the principle of just a bunch of people, the killers who will kill anyone at the drop of a hat yep. in a room together. And trying to outsmart one another is exactly what Reservoir Dog was, and that's all it ever was, and that's exactly where he started. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not this grand scope. It doesn't like go from different states, to different cities. To, it doesn't have like a massive fucking fight with eighty-eight swords people. In, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, it doesn't have a car chase. It doesn't have any of that. It's literally just people in a set. Yeah, and it's great. It's fucking brilliant, and I don't know. Like, there's there's so much. There's so little to unpick with The Hateful Eight, but there's so much to talk about. So sort of like how every character, again, similarly to Reservoir Dogs, has their own story. Yeah. And every character leads in in a different way. And then one line of dialogue can completely change how you watching, you're watching that film now. Yeah. And then like when you watch it a second time, you're like, oh, fuck, okay, yeah, I can see that there's that other hat in the background. Yeah. And I can see that this is different, and I can see that this is here because of this. Yeah. And it's, oh, it's fucking great. And I I could go on ad nauseum and just say how great this film is. Okay. Because I just, I love it. I, I love it as well. I mean, I was lucky, I meant to, went to go and see it at the cinema. Yeah, I never uh, got the chance And what to. was great about seeing it at the cinema is they actually have an intermission. Yeah. And he, perfectly places the intermission is that there's a really like like the tensions building and building and building and you have this end end up having this big monologue from samuel jackson um talking to bruce dern's character yeah and it ends in a you know you know violent way as they often do these conversations in tarantino and then it just cuts to black and goes now it's time for an intermission and you have to go out of the cinema go and talk with whoever you've like so i went and watched it with my mate adam if you're listening adam hi mate and we just went outside and talked about what we just watched. Yeah. And you pick it apart and go, fuck, what? Okay, now what? And, and but that is like, that's part of the experience. Mm-hmm. And he knows that. And the fact that he was able to build that talking into the movie. Yeah. Is like, he's just such a master of cinema. Like, he knows exactly how people operate and how they consume movies. Yeah. And what the best point is. And then you come back in again and it goes, and it's got a, a, um, a voiceover from Tarantino himself yeah. going, it's been 15 minutes since we last left our characters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Meanwhile, that they drew straws to figure out who would take out the body. Yeah. Obi lost. And so, and like, he just like catches you up on, oh, whilst you were outside having a chat, the action continued going on off screen. Yeah. You just weren't there. So yeah. like, let me just fill you in on what's been going on whilst you've been away. And it's just, it's so fucking brilliant. I love it. I love it. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's brilliantly staged. I do feel like it would make an amazing stage play. Yeah. Because of the nature of what it is. Yeah. And again, stage plays are designed to have an intermission halfway through. So again, it would work perfectly if you were to do that. Um, and I would love to see it. I think it could end up happening one day. I, I think, think so. Honestly, because he's talk- I mean, we've seen it with Reservoir Dogs. So. Yeah. 
Um, but he himself has talked about how he's coming to the end of his sort of filmmaking career, and I can see mm. him going on on that tangent. I remember when I first saw Hateful Eight, I was thinking to myself, God, he should really write books. He should write novels. Or this yeah. should be like a novella or something. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because he clearly has got all that detail is there. Yeah. To be able to flesh it out and have a prose, you know, a book yeah. by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Can you imagine? Fuck. <laughs> That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. Yeah. I think. I think in about 10 years' time, we'll be talking about the novelist. The novelist. And then there'll be someone who tries to adapt one of his novels into a movie. <laughs> And that person will be Zack Snyder. Tintin Quarantino. McGee. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Bay. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, he's never going to die, is he? Anyway. But anyway. like but, Eight Yeah. Tim Roth. I mean... Tim fuck. Roth. Tim Roth. Tim Roth. Michael Madsen. Yeah. Kurt Russell. Bruce Dern. Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson. Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah. That was, uh, I was trying to remember the surname. And one of the best little bits of stunt casting, Cameo. Yeah. Which they do kind of spoil up front, but Channing Tatum yeah. turns up. And they, I just remember being sat in the cinema and it's like a really long, drawn out, like it, it's the title sequence giving you all the acts. I'm like, yeah, I know Samuel Jackson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kurt Russell, yeah, Tim Roth, yeah. yeah. Channing Tatum? <laughs> Is Channing Tatum in the trailer? No. Is Channing Tatum in this movie? Well, the Channing Tatum, because like sometimes he's done weird shit. Like he's done, I think it was. Um... This is the end. No, not that. I was thinking um, uh, Tarantino. Like he, there's a there's a girl I think was in Death Proof who's called Sydney Portier. Really, and he changed her name. To, like her actual full name is something else. Yeah, but he changed it so that she's credited as Sydney Portier, just so everyone would go. Sydney Portier? No, no, not that one. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a different one. Not that Sydney Portier. He dead. Oh. He was great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like fucking Giant Tatum turned out, and he's great as well. He's, he's brilliant. He only has a little bit, but he's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and the, and again, it's just these, it's criminals being criminal and talking people down and, and threatening them in a non-threatening way, yeah. which is just the best way. Like Tarantino is just the master of that. And he has that throughout his entire cat, catalog of movies. Yeah. People who are just, threatening in a non-threatening way mm-hmm. like he does it with nazis he does it with slave owners he does it with criminals he does it with like and he does it perfectly everywhere um and yeah i love it I, tim roth is great i love the switch that he does yeah halfway through because he's really putting on this over-the-top affected accent as, as a um as the hangman oh he's fucking great yeah, Walton Coggins, like yeah. you said, like he's good in it. Again, I want to see him be someone that's not a C-word. Yeah, and it's great that they um, that he he got given a bigger part in this because mm-hmm. obviously he was in Django and he only had he was like one of the slave drivers and he wasn't much. Mm. And obviously um, Tarantino realized how good he was. Yeah, and put him front and center. And like I remember seeing like some of the back, behind the scenes stuff. Like Walton Coggins is just like, if you told me. <laughs> when I was 12, that I would be sat here and in the space of 10 pages have dialogue with Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Bruce Dern, and <laughs> like, <laughs> I would have told you you were full of shit. Yes. Yeah. It's like, I can't believe that I'm like, fair play, mate, you deserve it. And I feel I, he does need to be in more stuff because yeah. every time I see him in something, and we've talked about this before, like, he was in Tomb Raider last year and that was a bit meh. Yeah. And he was in um Ant Man of the Wasp and he was fine, but he's better than that. Yeah. And he deserves a good yeah. sort of crack. So hopefully one day it will turn up for him. Yeah, definitely. Um Yeah. But yeah, I mean uh, outside I mean again when we said going back to the sexism thing, it's it's fairly abhorrent in this one. But Yeah, but I mean she's also she's just as much of a bastard as everyone else. But yeah. she gets beating up far more than everyone else. Yeah, but it's the fact that it's the butt of many jokes in this film is Jennifer Jason Lee being punched, punched or yeah. elbowed, or. But I feel like yeah, they they do. It's weird because they do like he makes a point of sometimes it's com, you know comedy and sometimes it's it's you know made for laughs. But there are other points like there's a point very early on where he like um, Kurt Russell hits her, yeah, and he says, "Do you got it?" And she and he has this real close up on her face, and you can see the anger and the and the fucking humiliation and everything in her yeah. face, and she's just like. Say I got it, I got it, and you see the blood start to come down. And it's like he's made that 
in that such a way so you do feel sorry for her and you understand that yeah, yeah. even though she's this horrible cute you know, piece of shit human being mm. doesn't no one deserves to be treated like that but and also so, in the way that they they keep laying it out about her being Daisy Domague and how bad she is but we never really see her being bad what we see is everyone else being bad so we're told that she's bad yeah true and then everyone else is bad around her and you go okay I want to see a little bit more of her being a badass. Yeah. Then. Well, I don't know. It's not so much her being a badass is that her like taking joy in other people's like when when people get hurt and like she's yeah. like that that maniacal when she gets blood spurted all over and she's yeah. just laughing like a fucking lunatic and it's yeah. like oh yeah no you're evil you're pure evil yeah and that when she's threatening people and like it's not in her actions it's in her malice and yeah. so, do you know what I mean whereas everyone else is much more like yeah like i say it's action orientated mm-hmm. they do horrible things she has the capacity to do horrible things and that's partly because of her station as a woman in that world yeah. like she ha- she can like when she's basically in charge of all the guys yeah again this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but at one point she goes so now you've done that that makes me in charge everyone all right with that yeah yeah cool because yeah. they're all scared of her like yeah. a little bit like oren in in kill bill yeah they all just go yeah no we defer to you and you've seen these guys all be fucking badasses in their own right like if Tim Roth wanted to go, no, 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 I'm in charge now, or Michael Madsen did, mm-hmm. they could have done, but they didn't because they are all scared shitless yeah. of Daisy fucking Tomaku. Yeah, and that's the that's the thing that frustrates me. But it's me implied; with it's not there. It's yeah. implied. You have to read into that, and it's just like because yeah. uh, I do really, really respect him as a filmmaker, but then you have these like really reductive moments, and you're like, okay, let's keep improve, let's improve on these now. Quentin. Yeah, let's. Let's work on this. But again, I'm being overly critical because I've just watched nine of his films in the last, you know, three weeks. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I don't know really what else to say. I mean, it's another Ennio Morricone score. This is what he he finally won an Oscar for it. Yeah, absolutely deservedly as well. Like the cinematography is spot on. It's absolutely beautiful. Um. But yeah, I just I love, I yeah, it's um, what's his name? Tim, Tim Roth's um speech, yeah, about oh, um, justice, justice, yeah, frontier justice, yeah. The man who pulls the lever who ends your life will be a dispassionate man, but it is that dispassion which is the very heart of justice, <laughs> because justice delivered without dispassion is always in danger of not being justice. Fucking love it. He's I love that whole thing. And then great. he just goes, You're right, uh, no, to be fair, it would be difficult at hauling this lot out of here. And he just like yeah. cuts it out. Like, <laughs> I love the idea that he's this like this hard up, but for whatever reason he loves he relishes the idea of playing Oswaldo Mulberry, yeah. the hangman. Oh. And yeah, and like he has his little flourishes and like is a is the bar open? Follow moi. And like swans <laughs> yeah. over. It's like have you always like? It's like have you just been hiding this part of yourself amongst the gang and playing like a real hard man? But in actual fact, this is the real you. Yeah. Like, that's what I want to know. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, fuck. Michael Madsen's just an old cowboy. Just Michael Madsen. He's basically Michael. Madsen. If he just turned out and like they turned up and oh, Michael, I didn't know you were going to be here. Yeah, I'm going home to see my mother for Christmas. <laughs> okay, like, do you want to be? Do Tarantino. you want to be in the movie? Yeah, Tarantino yeah. didn't even know it. No. Like, I'm saying they just turned oh, yeah. up on set one day and he was there in costume. What's the next movie you're making? Oh, it's a western. I got it. I'll be there. No, it's gonna. No, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Are you gonna bark all day, <laughs> little doggy? You're gonna bite. It's fucking brilliant. <laughs> Love that dude. Um, yeah, and that's it, and that's where we where we've left it then. So that yeah. was 2015. Yeah, was hateful eight. It's a fairly big gap. As so well. there's, but yeah, four years. Yeah, um, and the the thing that was interesting about hateful eight is you almost didn't make it because it, at one point the script leaked. Yeah. So the whole script leaked, and everyone was like, "Oh, this is the next movie from Quentin Tarantino. It's called The Hateful Eight. It's going to be a western." And he was really angry about it. Yeah. It was like, "That's I'm not going to make it, or like I refuse to make it, or I'll do it as a play, or you know whatever." For whatever reason, he decided to make it anyway. Yeah. Um, but then I think what's happened as a result of that now is that he's super protective over his script. So, like, the rumour is that the script for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he literally has one copy of it. Yeah. And will send it round to each actor individually. And they have to then give it back to him because he's so protected. Like, it's not on a hard drive or anything anymore. Yeah. Because he's so scared of what happened with The Hateful Eight. Really? Apparently, yeah. But that's... Um, Fucking hell. It's interesting. Um, 
so yeah, I mean that's kind of it. He's gone full circle. He's gone up this thing. He's had this arguably once upon a time in Hollywood is going to be part of this same phase that we're talking about now. Yeah. In that it's a period piece set in a, around a particular historical event. Yeah. So we had World War Two. We had slavery. Mm-hmm. We had post Civil War, and then now what we've got is. 1960s Hollywood, but even more specific than that, it's around the Manson murders. Yeah. Which is very much a changing time, you know, when America lost its innocence or it's, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Well, um, it's when the summer of love ended. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and for the longest time, this has been talked about as Quentin Tarantino doing a Manson movie. Yeah. Whether that's actually what it's going to end up being or not, I don't know, mm-hmm. but we'll find out next week. Yeah, definitely. Um, before we sign off, I'm going to make you do it. Oh, no, I don't make me do it. Yeah. Not necessarily... I'm not going to make you say... I'm not going to give you, say, order all nine of them. Yeah. But I'm going to say, give me your top three. Okay, from the three different eras. Yeah. So my th- I think I know that fairly definitively. I think I can say that it's Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill Volume 1, and Django Unchained. Yeah. Now, ask me p- to pick between those three, I couldn't do it. Yeah. But those are my three top. Okay. What was it for you? So, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Hateful Eight. Yeah. And I'm really struggling with Kill Bills. I mean, Death Proof is cool, but I have a whole issue with the whole front load of that film. Yeah. Um, Probably two. Part two, I think. Because I really, yeah, I think too. Yeah. Just because I really like like the throwback style of the flashbacks. The f- the fact that all the flashbacks are to a kung fu movie, but the film itself is like a Western revenge thriller. Yeah. With action. And then, yeah, I just, I yeah. So, yeah, Reservoir Dogs, Kill Bill Volume 2, and The Hateful Eight for me. Okay, there you go. So, uh, well, that's interesting then, because we both now... We've got nine movies and six of them are in our top ten, but they're <laughs> two different six. They're like, yeah. There's no repetition. No. So, yeah, it's interesting. So the ones that haven't made our top six then collectively are what? Death Proof. Yeah. Um, Jackie Brown. Yeah. And Inglourious Bastards. Yeah. Those are the bottom three, mm-hmm. if you like. And they're all fucking great movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> God damn it, Tarantino. Stop being so great. Um, yeah, so there you go. We, I mean, it's clear that we're all fat, we're fans of his work. There's loads yeah. to pick into, um, and it, this probably won't be the last time we talk about him. No, God in, all, no. in all honesty, we could go back and revisit these films in more depth. Yeah, um, in years and weeks to come. But for the time being, that sort of closes the book on on the Tarantino back catalogue. Yeah, um, and then we'll see what he comes up with for next week. So we're yeah, going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he's combining the talents of Leonardo DiCaprio. Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Al Pacino. Yeah. The list goes on. But it's an amazing cast and it looks great and we're all really looking forward to it. Um, So we'll talk about that next week. Yep. In the meantime, if you guys have got any thoughts on Tarantino and stuff, I'm sure you do. If you've got different rankings from us, let us know. Yeah. Um, If you think Tom's ranking is better with, you know, Kill Bill Volume 2 and Reservoir Dogs and Hateful Eight, then you can go on to iTunes and give us five stars. If you prefer my ranking, where I talk about you know, uh, Pulp Fiction, Cuba Volume 1, and Django Unchained, then what you can do is you go onto iTunes and give us five stars. Yeah. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll be able to amalgamate both of them and figure out who yeah. comes out on top. Um, you can make your own assumptions. <laughs> yeah. Also, if you think we've got it wrong, go on, uh, put a five-star review on iTunes, and then put in your comments what your favourites are. Yeah. And then we'll definitely, definitely consider your opinions. Yes. Yeah. Strangers yeah. on definitely. the internet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can do that. You can um, get in touch with us on the pod at gmail.com is the email yeah. address. Uh, we're on Instagram or on Facebook. Anywhere where you like, you can just type in the Omcast and you'll find us. Yeah. Um, and yeah, let us know what you think about Tarantino and we'll talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood next week. Yeah. 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 Looking forward to it, man. It's going to be yeah, good. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. First time we've been to the cinema in quite a while, actually. Yeah, actually. Yeah, well, you've managed, by doing this, you've managed to avoid having to see Hobson Shaw. Yeah, fuck which... that. Fuck that. I'm not watching Thumb Wars, the movie. Anyway, see you next week, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
Pulfig. Oh, I saw a simple plan, a Pulfig film. It starts really well. I don't even know what that is. It doesn't finish well. It starts really interesting. What's a simple plan? It's uh, Anna Kendrick and Blake. Oh, Lively. a simple favour. That's the one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it starts really well. It starts really interestingly. It just fucking falls apart. Basically, he saw Gone Girl and went, I can do that. You can't, Paul. You can't. Does Melissa does McCarthy turn up halfway through and just start falling over? Because I know, <laughs> I know he's married to her and he finds her falling over. Hilarious. I think they are, yeah. Jeez. Why do you think she keeps being in his movies? <laughs> what, just for a laugh? I think the thing is that she can be quite funny sometimes, but at the same time, <laughs> she's got... Fat girl fall over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that shtick is getting... It does wear quite thin. It happened... She fell over three times in the trailer for Spy. I didn't want to watch it because it looked like shit. Yeah. I think... The trailer the, gave the, me the, a nosebleed. Uh, the only good thing about that trailer was the Jason Statham monologue. That's all I needed to see about that film. <laughs> I jumped. I jumped. I once jumped off a bridge on fire, not the car. I was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Great line.